next is charity. Over the years, how many sermons have you heard preached on faith? How many sermons on hope? But how many sermons on charity? Now, your modern versions, they have replaced the word charity with the word love. Now, charity is love, but every time the word love is used in the Bible, it doesn't have reference to charity. Charity is that special emphasis on an active love. As Brother Tim has said, it's to um, emphasize the importance of displaying it, feeling it, that it flows, and you can just feel it, and you can see it. And that's, uh, we never want to lose the, you know, if you just translate that word love instead of charity, you lose the punch of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Appreciate the message this morning very much on this wonderful subject. Uh, I want to look at Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7, I believe, is a, uh, the event that took place during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that reveals the heart of a man that's referred to as a centurion. Now, when you're reading the scriptures, you'll read about a centurion on seven different occasions. In the four gospels, the book of Acts, we find seven centurions coming to our attention. Uh, a centurion was a Roman soldier. He was the captain over a hundred men. And the Roman Empire had spread over the land of Palestine during the ministry of Christ. If you were a Jew back in that day, uh, it was nothing unusual as you went about your business to see Roman soldiers. And you would see a, a centurion every once in a while. Uh, the centurion was there again as a captain of over a hundred soldiers, but they were there to see to it that the Jewish people stayed in line, so to speak. Uh, that uh, there was no plotting and no planning to overthrow the Romans, uh, no plans for an insurrection. So they had to keep their eyes and their ears open all the time for this. I don't think the Roman soldiers enjoyed being there any more than the Jews enjoyed having the Roman soldiers be there. There was no love loss between the Roman soldiers and the Jewish people. But this is a story about a Roman soldier. His name's not given to us, but we're told a lot about this man. And I want us to see the heart of this man this morning, of this centurion. Um, the heart uh, is always, uh, you know, a, a very important part of our labors in the vineyard of our Lord, isn't it? Uh, when we sing, for example, in Ephesians 5.19, the apostle says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.15 and 16, let the word of God dwell richly in you. And uh, we are to teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. The unregenerated heart has no desire to do that. The heart of the wicked and the evil have no desire whatsoever to sing praises to the Lord. Jeremiah one time got so down and out and so discouraged, he said, I thought I'd not speak in the name of the Lord anymore, but his word was in my heart as a fire in my, my bones, and I was weary and forbearing, and I, I could not stay. In other words, I, I could not go through with it. I had to continue on in the service of the Lord. Well, Luke chapter 7, the first nine verses, also found in Matthew chapter 8, is a, a story of a centurion who has a servant. And the Bible says the servant was very dear unto him, but he was sick and ready to die. Now, first of all, we learn this about the centurion. The relationship between this centurion and his servant 
was one in which they both had, I believe, mutual admiration for one another and a love and concern one for another. And the scriptures teach us that uh, in our relationships one to another, while we may be a father and have sons and sons have fathers or masters have servants and servants have masters, uh, that we are still children of God. And the master may be a child of God, the servant may be a child of God. From a civil perspective, one is above the other, but in the Lord, they're on an equal basis. And Paul brought this to our attention several times. I just want to read this to you from the book of Colossians in chapter 3 this morning. You'll find it also in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You'll find it in Ephesians chapter 6. But we'll look here in Colossians 3.22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now we're talking about the culture of that day, where you had, literally you had servants, there were masters and there were servants. Now today, how does this apply to us? Well, we have employers and we have employees. We have supervisors. We have men who are in positions of authority with people underneath them. From the workplace uh, or from a civil perspective, there's duties and responsibilities and things expected of each. But God expects you to treat those who are under you on an equal basis. He says, you got a master in heaven. And how you treat those under you, you can expect to be treated by the master above you, you see. And so this is the instructions Paul was given that day. It still applies to us today. You may have 20 men working under you. You may be an employer. You may have your own business. You may have 100 people working under you. But you to realize that those people just might be children of God. And you to treat them in a manner that God would be well pleased with. I think this is illustrated very clearly in the book of Ruth. You go to the book of Ruth chapter 2 and you'll find where Boaz, who was a mighty man, Boaz was a very wealthy man, owned much property, and he went out to the field and spoke to his reapers one day and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they replied, the Lord bless you. Wonder how many times employers use the name of the Lord like that to employees or vice versa. But you notice the mutual and admirable respect that Boaz had for his reapers, for his workers, for his servants, and what they had for him. The Lord be with you. I believe Boaz said that with a smile on his face and with, with the strongest intents of the heart. And they replied, the Lord bless you. Boaz treated them kindly and lovingly and treated them very well. And they responded in like kind. And so that's what the scriptures teach us in our relationships one with another. You may be in the army. You might be a colonel. Here's a private. But you're to treat that private in the eyes of the Lord like he's a brother in Christ on an equal basis with you. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. So here in Luke chapter 7, we got a centurion that's got a servant that's dear to him, but he's sick and ready to die. Now this centurion could have easily replaced this servant. You know, he said, well, I can't have somebody that's sick around me. I got to have somebody attending to my needs. I got to have somebody I can depend on. 
I got to have somebody that can carry out his duties and responsibilities. This, this man here, he, he's sick. You, and he could order somebody else to, to take took him away and brought another one in his place. But he doesn't do that. He says he was dear unto him. Well, that, that teaches me that they had a very close relationship, even though one's a master, one is a servant, one's a centurion with power and authority. The servant has no authority whatsoever. But in their relationship, I believe that they must have treated one another as the scripture teaches us that we're to treat one another in Christ. So this centurion has a servant who's dear to him and he's very sick and he's close to death. Now he could have just let him die. But he had a concern for him and a love for him. Uh, which again tells me that this servant ministered unto him more than just from the standpoint of duty. You know, you can do things from the standpoint of duty, can't you, without any real feeling along with it? I think that's what Paul's talking about over here in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, when he says, He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly, but he that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. He says, Every man says his own purpose in his heart, so let him give. Now, we spoke about singing from the heart, preaching from the heart. When we give, yeah, we have a responsibility to lay aside on the first day of the week as God has prospered us. We have a responsibility, every single one of us, as 1 Corinthians 16, 1 says, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so I do unto you upon the first day of the week, let every single one of you, it says, let every one lay aside as God has prospered him. Be no gatherings when I come. That's a duty, that's a responsibility. But I trust when we do this, we look at it far beyond just a duty and responsibility. We do it because we want to do it. We, we love to do it. It's a blessing in giving, especially to support the household of God, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find Paul in Acts chapter 20 telling the elders of Ephesus. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So he says, every man so purpose in his heart, so let him give. Not, out of, not grudgingly or necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, you can give grudgingly, and you can give necessity. You can give $100 grudgingly, and you can give $100 out of necessity, or you can give $100 cheerfully. Now, the $100 will be $100 in every, all three cases, won't it? it? It'll help out in all three cases. But as far as the giver's concerned, if you did it grudgingly or out of necessity, just out of duty, you're not going to feel anything. You're not going to be blessed because God loves a cheerful giver. I believe God gave his son cheerfully. I don't think God gave his son grudgingly, do you? I don't think God gave his son out of necessity. Yes, it was required for a perfect offering, perfect sacrifice to come, and only Jesus could qualify for that. But God loved the people here that he gave Christ before the foundation of the world. And he loved them so great that he was willing to give the life of his only begotten son to die for them and die vicarious death and to save them from their sins. I can't see God doing that grudgingly. I can't see God doing that just as a standpoint of legality. Can you? I don't think so. I don't think so. As Brother Tim preached to us this morning, we have the greatest display of God's love in action in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is a centurion. Now, this, I want you to think about this, and I may ask you to remember this. Uh, something more than just one time here this morning. This centurion is a Roman soldier. This centurion comes with a pagan background. This centurion did not have the benefit of the oracles of God. This centurion 
was taught to be self-sufficient as a soldier in the army. He's not at home. He's probably missing his home place where he came from. But he's been assigned the responsibility to be in the land of Palestine to watch these Jewish people that were in subjection to the Romans at this time. And he's to make sure that he keeps his eyes open, his ears open of any possibility of an insurrection or a plot, a plan, or whatever that the Jews might have to try to overcome the dominion that the Romans had over them. This Roman soldier has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. This Roman soldier has no scriptures in his hand. Okay, I want you to understand this about this man. Here's the profile of this man, this Roman soldier right here. This Roman soldier has a servant that's sitting about ready to die, but there are no plans to replace him. There are no plans to dismiss him. He desires this man to recover from this great sickness. It's, he's almost ready to leave this world. He was dear to him. This tells me something about the heart of this man. The heart of this man is going to be revealed in what's before us here in the, in the Luke seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. But the Bible says that this man heard of Jesus. It didn't say he heard Jesus. It says this man heard about Jesus, heard of Jesus. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, every, every Lord's Day, when I try to preach to you, I want to preach some things to you about Jesus, right? When I read and study, I'm trying to learn more about Jesus. More about Jesus, what I know, the hymn writer said. And it's, uh, you know, it's an in, he, he's an inexhaustible subject. <laughs> you know, you can't wring the towel dry in, in trying to study about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an inexhaustible subject. He's such a delightful subject, such a lovely subject, such a wonderful subject. There's nothing about the life of Jesus Christ that would cause you to be ashamed of what he said and what he did. That's why when I preach the gospel of Christ, I want to hold up to you a victorious Savior. I want you to admire him. I want you to love him. I want you to see what his greatness, you know. Uh, the way some people preach Christ, I'd, I'd hate to have to have a message like that. I don't preach a weak Christ, a begging Christ, uh, a failing Christ but a victorious Christ, a wonderful Christ, a great Christ, a powerful Christ, a compassionate Christ. We find here this man had heard of Jesus. No evidence whatsoever he'd ever heard a sermon preached by Jesus or any of his apostles, but he heard about him. I figure he must have heard it from the soldiers that were under him. The soldiers, they mingled and they went in among the crowd. You know, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers had to go into town. They had to, to buy things for their own necessities, one thing and another. And no doubt, many things Jesus said and did, the soldiers either heard or even saw theirself, and they tell their master, the centurion, something about Jesus. Now, he's going to send the elders of the Jewish people to Jesus. Now, notice what it says here. These are the elders. He didn't send his soldiers. When he heard him, Jesus sent on him the elders of the Jews beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. The word beseech, it means to plead. It basically means to beg in an honorable, dignified manner, an honorable, dignified way. He could have sent his soldiers, couldn't he? He could have sent his soldiers and said, I hear about this man named Jesus. I want you to go get him and bring him to me. I read about an attitude like that that's found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. There was a king in Israel, his name is Ahaz, And he fell through the lattice because he was sick and frail and weak. And he fell through the lattice. He was sick on his bed. 
And he sent some message to Ekron, the god, the false gods <laughs> that in that day, to inquire of him, a false god, a lifeless god, to inquire of him what his future was going to be. And the Lord spoke to Elijah. He said, Elijah, I want you to meet these messengers on the way to Ekron, and I want you to tell them why they're going to Ekron when there's a true and living God in Israel. Why are you going over there? But you tell them, you go back and you tell them to tell the king that he's going to die. He's not going to recover this sickness. The message turned around and went back. And when they told the king that, the king says, describe this man to me. And they began to describe this man to, to him. And he says, there's nobody but Elijah the Tisbit. That's who told you that. <laughs> he knew all about Elijah. He didn't like Elijah. And so he took 50 men and put a captive over these 50 and sent them to get Elijah. And they come to get Elijah. Elijah's on top of the mountain. They come to Elijah. And they said, the king has said unto you to come with us. Do you know what Elijah done? He called on God and fire come down and consumed them all. So the king sent 50 more men with the captain. They got there and the captain said, the king has said for you to come down and come with us to him. He called on God and God sent fire down and consumed all them. See, he's not beseeching him. He is telling him. He's commanding. He's demanding. So he sends another captain, 50 men. This captain gets there. The Bible says he fell on his knees before Elijah. He says, fire's consumed a, a captain and 50 men on two other occasions before I got here. He said, I'm just beseeching you. Please come with me. <laughs> There's a difference, right? There's a difference. This centurion could have sent some soldiers to go get Jesus. He didn't do that. He sent the elders of the Jews. Now, there's no love lost between Jews and, and Romans here in this situation. Remember that? The Romans are down there to keep peace. The Romans are down there to keep order. There's no love lost between the Jews and the Romans. The Jews don't like the fact that the Romans are invade, invaded their land and have dominion over them. But he sends the elders of the Jews. He does not send his soldiers. And he sent his elders beseeching the Lord. See, that's language of the Apostle Paul in many places. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, with your reasonable service. That's what you've done here this morning. You are presenting your body a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable, isn't it, to be here this morning? He says it is. And Paul said, I beseech you that you present your body a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, as was that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Paul used the word beseech numerous times. He sends the elders of the Jews to Jesus, beseeching him, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him. That's what they're doing. They're beseeching him instantly saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Now this is a little out of the ordinary here. They're saying he's worthy for whom we've come. They're representing him to Jesus. It says he's worthy for whom we are representing here to come and heal his servant because he loves us. He loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, remember who this man is. 
This man's a Roman soldier. This man's a Gentile. Not a Jew, he's a Gentile. He has a pagan background. He's a man of authority. He's taught to be self-sufficient. He's got a cause here. He's got a servant dear to him, sick, about ready to die. He sends the elders of the Jews to where Jesus is, beseeching him that he would come with them. And they do that instantly, and they give testimony that this man is worthy of whom we are talking about here. He loves us and built us a synagogue. I'm not going to tell you that all centurions were like this. I'm sure they were not. You know, those uh, servants could have left there, those elders of the Jews, and they could have said, well, why should we do this? He said, he's treated us cruelly. He's treated us uh, hatefully. Uh, he's not shown us any favor, no kindness. You know, we've tried our best to do our duty responsibilities, and we're just fortunate he sets any meal before us. One thing, they could have said things like that, but they didn't because that wasn't true. That wasn't the case. They're going there happily. They're going there cheerfully. They're going there to represent a Roman soldier, a centurion, a man who represents basically their enemy. But they come to the Lord and they beseech him and say, this man is worthy because he loveth our nation and hath built us a synagogue. Did he have to do that? He sure did not. He didn't have uh, any... Uh, instructions to build them a synagogue out of the love of his heart for these people right here. Remember, he's a Gentile, they're Jews, but out of the love of his heart, he's built them a synagogue in that city. And the elders of the Jews say, this man is worthy for whom we have come to represent. And they did this instantly, the Bible says. For he loveth our nation and built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. There's no record here, but Jesus replying verbally to them. But he, he went with them. I'm sure they were happy about this, and they were delighted. They went, they stated their cause. Jesus <laughs> went with them. You know, what a blessing it is to go somewhere and just feel like the Lord is with you, right? I'm telling you, when I, when I travel, oftentimes I'm by myself without human companionship. But I never feel like I'm by myself. Uh, it gives me a good time to spend quality time. People talk about quality time. <laughs> well, that is quality time you spend with the Lord. And I visit with the Lord, and I talk to the Lord, and I pray to the Lord, and I try to ask the Lord for light and understanding of His Word as I try to meditate on His Word as I travel down the road. And I can just feel the divine presence of the Lord with me. If I didn't believe I would have that, I just wouldn't go. Jesus went with them. Sister Regina's father, a wonderful man, passed away a few years ago. A very godly man. And every time they would go down to Florida, before they, when they got ready to leave to come back, before they left, he'd always want to have prayer with them, which I think is a wonderful idea for anybody. Want to have prayer with them for God's traveling grace. <laughs> I thought that was so good. For the traveling grace of God, for God to go with them and be with them. I remember one time we were trying to get a pressure washer started. And I uh, was over at Mark's house trying to get a pressure washer started. And we couldn't get it started to save our life. We tried everything we could think of, you know. And finally, I just said, maybe we ought to pray about it. And the next thing I know, instantly, he's praying. <laughs> he did. He started praying. And I thought, you know, and I didn't say it all that seriously. And I said, maybe we should pray about it. And he just started praying about it. And I'm thinking, Lord... Please let this thing start. 
Well, it didn't. <laughs> but he, he believed what I said. I said, maybe we should pray about it. He, so he didn't even hesitate. He started praying about it. Lord, bless this thing to start up. <laughs> this centurion here could have sent soldiers, but he didn't. This centurion here could have demanded and commanded Jesus to come. And from the standpoint of his authority, he could have done that. But he didn't do that. He sent the elders of the Jews. I think he felt like he was very confident they would properly represent him. I think he believed that they would do, do what he asked them to do. That they would go and they would seek the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to heal his servant. Now, they beseech the Lord. The Lord goes with them. And they're on the way back. Now let's see what the man says. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. Now he's going to send somebody else. This time described as friends. This man's got friends. I guarantee you there's a lot of centurions that didn't have any friends. <laughs> they misused and abused their power and their authority. But not this man. This man sends his friends. Isn't friendship wonderful? I'm going to tell you what. A true blue dye-in-the-wool friend is worth more than money in the bank. To have somebody that will stand by you through thick and thin, that you can depend upon, that you can confide in, that you can lean upon. You know, a friend, a real friend, not, not a fair-weather friend, but a real true friend that's sticking closer than a brother. Well, you know, every one of us has got at least one because his name is Jesus. John 15, 13, the Lord said, Greater love hath no man than this. The man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you to do. Is there a greater love, charity in action, love in action than that? Greater love hath no man than this. That man lay down his life for his friends. Oh, to have friends. The, the principles of friendship are listed for several times in the book of Proverbs. I don't have time to go into that this morning. But I will mention this. Three different times in the Bible, twice in the old and once in the new, Abraham was referred to as the friend of God. Why was Abraham a friend of God? Well, he was a friend of God because he walked by faith. He was a friend of God because he did what God commanded him to do. He was a friend of God because Abraham depended upon God and trusted in God and leaned upon God. That's why he was the friend of God. So three different times in the Bible, we're told that Abraham was God's friend. This man's got some friends. I know people don't hardly have any friends. You know why? One reason, if a man has friends, he must show himself friendly. And I know some people that's very unfriendly. If they're unfriendly, I doubt they got any friends. So if you want to have a friend, you got to be a friend. That's really what that verse is saying. If you want to have friends, you got to be a friend to other people. You got to show yourself to be friendly. This man's got friends. He says, and they, they came to him and said, Lord, trouble not thyself. This is the message he's given to them. For I'm not worthy that I should enter under my roof. This Roman centurion soldier is saying that he is not worthy for this poor Jewish man to come under his roof. That's what you got here. You got a man of means. You got a man of power. You got a man of authority. And he's speaking to a man that is poor. The Lord was a poor man. 
we find in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Brother Tim mentioned this this morning, for we know the grace of God that though he was rich, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. This man is saying to a poor Jewish man that he has dominion over from the standpoint of his position that I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. What, what causes a person to feel unworthy? The wicked don't feel unworthy. The evil don't feel unworthy. The unregenerate of this world, they don't feel unworthy. So what, what causes a person to feel unworthy? It's called grace. It's called the grace of God that has arrested you, the grace of God that's apprehended you, the grace of God that's born you of the Spirit of God that sets up this conflict with inside of you between the Spirit and the flesh and teaches you that you are not worthy of the blessings of the Lord. There's not a one of us here this morning that truly is worthy of God's favor and God's kindness and God's blessings upon us. But thank God he blesses us anyway, right? See, we've seen a heart here of compassion as well. You know what compassion is? Your pain in my heart. That's what compassion is. It's your pain. I see your pain. I recognize your pain. I feel your pain in my heart. Aren't you glad God's a God of compassion? Jeremiah spoke of it like this. In Lamentations chapter 3, he says, uh, It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. They're new every morning. He says, Thy compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. God's a God of compassions, plural, and they fail not. This morning, I looked out the window, and I saw the brightness of the sun, and the trees turning different colors, and it just, it was, you didn't hardly hear a sound, and I thought, how blessed I am to still live in a land where I got up this morning without fear. I got up this morning, I'm walking around, I'm breathing. I got a wife, I got children, I got grandchildren, I got a warm, loving, kind, generous church family here that I was guessing, expecting uh, in just two or three hours to be able to get with them and meet with them. And I'm thinking how blessed I am because that's not the case in many places in the world. There are people this morning that hardly slept and when they did and woke up, my friends, they were afraid they might not see another day. How wonderful God is to us, how blessed we are. To have a God like that that's given us this kind of beautiful day to admire his handiwork, to admire his mercy and his grace, his compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. Not great is my faithfulness, but great is his faithfulness, you see. I'm not worthy that I should come under my roof. I read about another man who felt that way. His name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, came fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures from Malachi and Isaiah. John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, recognized him, identified him, pointed him out, said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You have to admire this man. Admire this man's humility. Admire this man's faithfulness. Well, as the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 13 that he fulfilled his course. Now, he died a young man. He died in his early 30s. He was beheaded by Herod because he simply stood up for the truth of God. But he fulfilled his course. You know what he said is recorded in 
Matthew, recorded in Mark, recorded in John, and recorded in the book of Acts. He said, there's one who's coming after me that's preferred before me whose shoe latches I'm not worthy to unloose. You know what Jesus said about this man? In Matthew chapter 11, he said, of men that's been born of women, there's not been a greater man born than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said about John. But what did John say about John? <laughs> That's what I'm interested in. What did John say about John? John said about John, I'm not worthy to lose the shoe latches of his shoes. There was a man one time I read about, Luke chapter 15, he came to his father. He said, Father, give me my living. He won his inheritance before his father died. So the father gave it to him. He had two sons. He gave them their living. He went ahead and gave the other son, the older son, his portion too. And the Bible says this younger son, they went into a far country and wasted all his substance on riotous living. Now we're not told any details about this, but I know it's not good. <laughs> riotous living is not good. So he wasted all his substance, his inheritance, on righteous living, he, he got to the place he didn't have any friends. And he went to work for a man who had swine, and the man let him eat the husk that he fed to the swine. You can't get much lower than this. And then one day, he came to his senses. He said, my father's servants back home got it better than I have. And amen to that. He says, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against my father. I am not worthy. I am not worthy. When he left home, he thought he was plenty worthy. When he left home, he thought he was worthy to get his substance, worthy to get his inheritance ahead of time. But now he realizes, I'm not worthy. And he heads back home. And his father sees him coming. I believe his father had looked for him every day. I believe his father had looked for him every single day he was gone. Don't you think so? No matter what his son had done, had been out of his sight for a while, displayed the sin of greediness and selfishness when he left home. I believe he'd been looking for him every day. And finally one day he's looking, he sees him coming. And the Bible says he saw him afar off and had compassion upon him. And when the son got there, the son repeated what he did when he was away from home. He says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called thy son. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against thee. I'm not worthy to be called thy son. But the father had compassion. And the father called for the fatted calf to be killed. He said, put my ring upon his finger, my robe around his shoulders. For this my son that once was dead, he's now alive. He once was lost, and now he's found. What a display of compassion. Aren't you glad... <laughs> That man represents the Lord from the standpoint of his compassion and his receiving of his children back when they repent and they come back to where they should have been all along. This man says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for thou to come under my roof. He says, I'm a man of authority. And he recognized a parallel between the authority of Christ before miracles and his authority as a captain of the Roman soldiers he said, I'd say to this soldier, go, and he'll go. I'd say to this soldier, come, and he'll come. I'll say to this soldier, do this, and he'll do it. He said, I know now all you have to do is speak the word. 
and my servant shall be healed. What great faith is this? And the Bible says that Jesus marveled at this. He marveled at the great faith of this man. He said, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in all of Israel. This man is not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. He's a Roman soldier, Gentile, pagan background without all the benefits of the oracles of God. I want you to remember that. Somebody says, well, how in the world did the Lord reach him? <laughs> how did the Lord reach him? Just like he reached you. <laughs> Just like he reached me. Just like he reaches every single heir promise, no matter where they live in this world, it may be in the darkest parts of Africa, it may be in China, it may be in Vietnam, it may be in Russia, it may be in Poland, it doesn't matter. God knows where every single heir promise, every child of his grace, every object of love, he knows where they're all at. And sometime between conception and death, God reaches them. <laughs> God reaches them. <laughs> how, how did Rahab have displayed such great faith? When she was born and lived over there, you know, in, in Jericho, among the heathens and the pagans of that day. And when the spies came, she said, I know what God's done for you. I know he dried up the Red Sea. I know he defeated those two kings in the wilderness. I know he dried up Jordan's river. We'll do that. And he's given you this land. How does she know that? And walk by faith. Well, the Bible says she was justified by her works. God reached her, didn't he? Because she was the object of his love. No more for God to reach a child of grace in the darkest parts of Africa than it is to reach you right here in Nashville, Tennessee. I believe in a God who reaches. I believe in a God who finds. I believe in a God who knows. I believe in a God who's got the power. I believe in a God that reaches down from heaven, my friends, and touches the hearts of his children, his elect family. And they're born of the Spirit of God, and then their heart reveals what they are. This man's heart reveals he's a born-again child of God. Even though he's a pagan, come from, excuse me, a pagan background, a Gentile man, a Roman captain of a hundred men known as a centurion, but God had touched his heart. I'm not worthy. The Lord said, I found not so great a faith, no, not in all of Israel. He said that about another Gentile one time, found in Matthew chapter 15, a Gentile woman who came to the Lord beseeching him to heal his, her daughter. And he referred to her as having great faith too. And both of them were Gentiles. And both times he healed from a distance because the Gentiles were separated from uh, the commonwealth of Israel in that particular day until Christ died on Calvary. From the point of the gospel blessings and one thing or another in the manner and way of worship. Two times. Now the Lord marveled this man's belief, this man's faith. He marveled one other time, but it wasn't at somebody's great faith. He marveled at the unbelief of the Jews in Mark chapter 6. You'd have thought he'd have found great faith there, but he did not. Now, I'm like the disciples. When I come to the Lord, I want to say, Lord, increase my faith. <laughs> I don't need a decrease, I need an increase, right? <laughs> Lord, increase my faith. You remember the time he was on the ship in the first storm in Matthew chapter 8? We find where he was asleep in the bottom of the ship. And they came in and woke him up in that great storm and said, Master, care us not that we perish. And the Lord then was awakened by the cries of his disciples and he rebuked the wind, rebuked the sea. There was instant peace. The storm was over. What did he say to those disciples? Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, excuse me, of no faith. Oh, ye of no faith. How does you have no faith? 
Now, they had faith in the heart, but it wasn't manifested. The fear of the storm overwhelmed them to the point they doubted the Lord's love and concern for them. Have you ever been there? I, I wouldn't want to admit it this morning. Uh, you know, uh, but I think we've all been there, haven't we? When the storms of life have overwhelmed us to the point that our words and our actions re- seem to reveal we didn't even have any faith. And in Matthew chapter 14, when the second storm, when Christ came walking on the water, and Peter said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me to come to thee on the water. He said, Come. And Peter walked on the water for a while, took his eyes off the Lord, and he began to sink, and the Lord reached out and took him by the hand and delivered him. Here's what he said to Peter, O thou of little faith. Lord, increase my faith. I don't want to be found having no faith. I want to be found just having little faith. I want to be found having great faith in the Lord, right? I want to be like Paul says in Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it's impossible to please him, but he that cometh unto him must believe that he is. Is reward of them that diligently seek him. Lord, increase by faith. In this day of weariness, in this day of trials and tribulations and darkness that we're facing and living in every single day, Lord, increase my faith. I tell you, the last few, the last few months when we've been trying to sell our house, you know, one thing or another, every single day, I said, Lord, increase my faith. Lord, uh, you promised never to leave me nor forsake me. I'm counting on that promise now, Lord. Uh, deliver me and help me and uphold me here. And you know, right now, by the way, we do have a contract. Uh, please pray it'll go through. <laughs> please pray it'll go through. It's looking pretty good right in the moment, but I've been there before. I got right up to the signing date, my friends, and they backed out on me. But the Lord's never backed out, so Lord, increase my faith. <laughs> Help me here. This is a story of the revelation of a, the heart of a child of God that from the standpoint of the theories, and uh, not theories, but the teachings of men in this world today, there's no way in the world he could have such a change of heart. He never heard the gospel. Nobody had ever witnessed to him, told him one thing and another. But it's a testimony of God's grace once again. Now he reaches the hearts of God's people no matter who they are and where they're at and what their circumstances are.